3: Hi, and welcome to A Taste of the Past. I'm your host, Linda Palaccio, on this weekly journey through culinary history. And Paris, you know, has always been associated with fine dining. Whether you think of the sidewalk cafes or a smoky bistro and a sultry chanteuse, romance, fine food, even throughout history, there have been monarchs, marriages, murder, intrigue, and fine dining. Whatever the period of time... It is an indisputable fact that Parisians have a long-standing love affair with food, contagious to anyone who visits. And my guest today, David Downey, definitely caught the bug and dove headfirst into the food and history of Paris. David moved to Paris in the mid-'80s and became a travel, food, and arts writer, with features appearing in many of the leading publications, such as Gourmet, Sèvres, and Milleau, David divides his time between France and Italy. It's a tough life, but someone has to do it. And David is the author of over a dozen nonfiction books, including Paris, Paris, and A Passion for Paris. His newest book, out next week, is a must for anyone going to Paris and anyone with an interest in food and history. Big hint, he gives walking tours of Paris. The book is called A Taste of Paris, a history of the Parisian love affair with food. And joining me by phone from Paris. Welcome, David. Well, thank you. I'm thrilled to be here. <laughs> well, you say I'm here and there. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you know, kind of here. <laughs> but you say that this you you've written this book and that it is um, you don't want to have people shy away thinking it's too much history, and you do give some nice You know, good, deep, heavy history in there, but you like to refer to it more as a romp through Paris, weaving past and present.
4: Yes, because I think that the uh, past is present in Paris. Uh, Paris is a very old city, as I'm sure you and all of your listeners know and uh, everywhere you go you find the past living and that's what's so wonderful about it for me because I'm um, a history buff and um, I, I just love the living layers of history uh, you get that in the food uh, you uh, for example uh, tonight I am going to be eating a historic um, dish uh, Very, very complicated, very sophisticated, and I bet you could guess what it is, um, but I'm going to save you the trouble and tell you it's pool au pot, and that is basically chicken in a pot.
3: Well, you, know, Do you remember
4: just, Henry IV, King Henry IV, who famously said that every um, uh, uh, inhabitant of France deserved a chicken in the pot? chicken in every well, pot. that right. was 400 years ago, and it's still a very popular dish, and that's what I'm making right now.
3: <laughs> okay, so you beg the question, why Paris? Why are Parisians so passionate about their food?
4: Um, Because food became an intellectual activity, hedonism, um, eating uh, uh, were both intellectualized over 200 years ago. So food uh, was not just about eating and about getting enough calories to stay warm and function through the day. It wasn't just fuel. Um, There were two uh, theorists. Uh, the, the people who really uh, developed the notion of gastronomy, la gastronomie, um, uh, and uh, they were both born in the 18th century during the reign of Louis the 5th. They came into their own during the reign of Louis XVI, uh, grew up sort of about the time we had our revolution in America and um, then really founded um, the science of gastronomy. It was considered a science um, just after the French Revolution. Um, and I'm talking about uh, Grimaud de la Reynière, which is not an easy name, and most no. people don't <laughs> know it, and Briard. Savarin, and most people do know Briar Savarin, although possibly not pronounced that way, because the Savarin cake, the sponge cake, was named after him. So these two guys really um, turned eating and entertaining dining into an intellectual art. It became very hip, and um, it wasn't considered... Uh, not mere gluttony anymore, and that sort of shaped the way um, the middle and upper classes thought about food, and, and it moves on today. Briar uh, Savarin's book, by the way, which is called The Physiology of Taste in English, The Physiologie du Goût* in French, has never been out of print and it was published in the 1820s, and it has never been out of print.
3: Alright, and it's a must-read for anyone in the in the field of of food and gastronomy.
4: Truly, I would say for anyone, um, period, uh, it's beautifully written. It's fascinating, and one of the things that I like most about it, beyond the the, the, the writing, which is just beautiful, um, is the way. Uh, this man, Pierre Savarin, um, anticipated and intuited all kinds of things that uh, modern science learned decades or a century after he died.
3: Hmm, interesting. And, and uh, you speak also of Grimaud de la Renière. And he, in fact, was like what we would, I guess, consider the first restaurant, review, restaurant critic, restaurant review writer as well. Was he not?
4: Yes, that's right. Uh, He he wrote the first uh, restaurant reviews and also the first um, restaurant guidebooks. Um, You have to bear in mind that the restaurant as we know it today, meaning an a la carte restaurant where you sit at your own table and order uh, things off of a menu, um, was born in Paris in the 1760s. Uh, There were no restaurants before that. There were taverns, and there were inns, and there were all sorts of places where you could eat, uh, but they weren't cold restaurants, and they didn't offer a la carte dining. Um, Now, we take that for granted, right? You think, well, what's so revolutionary about sitting down in a restaurant and ordering a meal? But before the uh, resto or in, as it was known in the beginning, the restaurateur, um, you basically sat at a tavern table, a shared table, often a big table, and you didn't know what you were going to eat, and you had to struggle for it. And uh, uh, the quality of the food wasn't necessarily great. Uh, the decor was uh, pretty minimal. And um, then suddenly, with the rise and rise of the bourgeoisie, um, we're talking about the heyday of Madame de Pompadour and so on, who who made um, being bourgeois chic. Um, Suddenly, someone came up with this idea of creating a a restaurant that looked like a... um, a nobleman's house or a dining room mm-hmm. and uh, where you were served by discreet waiters. you could sit at your own table and you had um, a la carte items uh, with a price attached and this this was all very, very uh, new and revolutionary right. so uh, uh, Grimaud Laraigne uh, came along uh, he was born about the time the restaurant was born And um, during the French Revolution, and primarily after it, but uh, the the revolution extended, the revolutionary period extended from 1789 to 1799, that's 10 years. By the time it was over, Climaud-la-Renire was um, uh, reviewing these restaurants and putting together his first guidebook, which came out in 1802, I believe, the first edition of it. So he was really the forerunner of resta- all restaurant critics and um, and guidebook writers.
3: All right, well, and it took a while for Americans to catch up for sure. But interestingly enough, um, just this year, in fact, just a couple of weeks ago, Delmonico's here in New York City celebrated its 180th anniversary. And as the first fine dining restaurant in America, and of course, fashioned after the French. Style the restaurant and and uh, you know with with French menus and recipes and so but it took a good what eighty years after the start of the restaurant in Paris before that happened so it's it's interesting that it was born and and started in Paris and it took a while to catch on in other major cities um, yes it but, did but what but even before then. We speak. I mean, you. You even mentioned in your book that, um, for a historical perspective, you don't have to look much further than Rome, for the cuisine, Uh, Greeks, Romans. um, What? What do you? When do you feel that really, the French before being codified in writing for recipes? But when do you feel French cuisine was born?
4: Um, I would say that specifically French cuisine, as opposed to um, court cuisine or the paper cuisine, mm-hmm. um, which was eaten all over Europe, um, uh, it really came into its own in the um, 17th century, yeah, 1500s, okay. and specifically under Louis the 14th at Versailles and, mm-hmm. and in Paris. He went back and forth. Um, Uh, until the 1680s when he moved out to Versailles permanently so the the cradle of French gastronomy is uh, Paris and Versailles Um, but as you said the the ancient Roman influence um, is there the French still eat many ancient Roman specialties without knowing it and uh, others do too the Italians obviously Um, and I'll I'll, I'll toss out just a few of the ones that everyone thinks of and everyone associates with France. Um, Escalgo, never heard of snails? <laughs> well, the, the Romans were wild about snails, and they still are. Uh, no one talks about the Italians eating snails um, because the French <laughs> took over, and I guess escargot sounds better than lumaca. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Which sounds like a slug, which is just, the same. But it word is in right. <laughs> um, how about frog legs? Well, there's an entire chapter in Apicius's uh, Imperial, late Imperial era cookbook um, about how to cook frogs, um, uh, and You know, mustard, Uh, everyone thinks mustard comes from Dijon, right? No, ancient Rome brought mustard to France, Um, and on and on. And then the killer one that that makes the French squirm, they absolutely can't stand this, if you remind them, is foie gras.
3: Foie gras, of course.
4: Foie gras, pegato grasso, but the ancient Romans didn't um, invent it. Uh, They perfected it, uh, Apicius uh, again. Um, It's actually ancient Egyptian, and no one knows how old it is. And it was um, made by um, uh, the the Jews uh, in antiquity, In fact, they may have introduced it to Egypt during the captivity. It's unknown. Um, The Greeks picked it up. The Romans picked it up. So Fort has been around for a very long time, Um, and I could go on. But uh, there are many, many things uh, that you eat in France today and in Paris um, that have been eaten here for the last 2,000 years or more.
3: Well, and I like how you say that, you know, you, don't, you have to look no further than Rome, but it was all part of the Roman Empire, so that all kind of makes sense anyway,
4: that, that it's all. Indeed. <laughs> it was a fairly important city. Um, it wasn't a really important city. Lyon um, know, today's Lyon know, was the capital of Gaul. It was much, much bigger, and Reims where the cathedral is, the famous cathedral, was also huge and much more important than Paris. Um, Paris happened to prosper more than the others I've just named in the Middle Ages, and it became the seat of royalty in the Middle Ages. And uh, and, it really has been the center of French life for... Mm, probably about nine hundred years.
3: All right. Well, it, some so many of the feasts, of course, the food of the courts, as you mentioned before, those a lot of those feasts have been recorded as a budgetary matter, if nothing else. But um, but also in we you know in in art, although we hate to look to art to get true representation, but at that period, um, you know, prior to the. Um, 18th century it was probably pretty accurate and many of the tapestries are are representations of feasts and you mentioned that as well Um, especially at the um, well go on you talk
4: Yeah, no, there are are lots of representations of food from antiquity that are very accurate and very beautiful, Uh, lots of Roman mosaics, for example. Mm -hmm. And um, yes, in tapestries, there are um, some absolutely beautiful tapestries in Paris that... A lot of people will have heard of the Lady and the Unicorn series, for example. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're, they're, um Renaissance tapestries are from the 1500s, and they're hanging in the Musee de Cuny, which is the National Museum of the Middle Ages in Paris. And um, they uh, represent the senses, and if you look carefully, you will see all sorts of um, edible things in them because... Uh, the senses obviously about eating it but also smelling and seeing and touching and so forth and in one of them there are dozens and dozens of um, medicinal plants and plants that were used for cooking Um, there are also lots of treatises um, uh, cookbooks uh, collections of recipes put it that way Um, so Uh, Quite a lot is known about what people ate. There are plenty of infant toys or even uh, a a lot of menus uh, left over. And then there are a number of very precious late medieval cookbooks. And um, I talk about one in detail in the book, uh, my book, Uh, And it was compiled—I'm not going to say written, but let's say compiled—in the 1390s by a a celebrity cook, the first French celebrity cook, uh, whose name was Taizan. Uh, That wasn't his real name, but everyone Mm -hmm. called him Taizan. And as many of your listeners will know— Probably the most famous and um, longest-lived great restaurant in Paris is called Le Taivon. It's been around for, wow, I don't know, 50 years or something, 60 maybe. Uh-huh. Um, uh, and so it honors Taivon. Um, there, there was a notion of French cooking in the Middle Ages, but um, you know, if you were of the upper classes, uh, you tended to be, actually, in a strange way, uh, very European as opposed to very French. Um, the, the, the the notion of France and the monarchy was not the same back then, and it was really with Louis the Fourteenth who f- finished the task of destroying feudalism in France and creating this gigantic um kingdom uh that you also get the notion of french food.
3: Yeah, well that it's it's uh it's only I mean it's understandable from reading, you know, about the different marriages between uh the countries that and the somehow the french food always prevailed and um and how it, one talks about the type of service um you know at at courts uh, in the french of course service a la russe was the big change right and you talked about um you talk a lot about the service a uh, la francaise which i don't even think was a french thing was that yeah. uh, um, everything being brought out at once but in small portions kind of like at a a grab bag table <laughs> as opposed to being brought out in courses, right? And yeah, yeah,
4: yeah. So, a banquet. Uh, it, we still get them today. I mean, you've you've been to a banquet except probably um, in America the banquets that I went to, um, everything was brought out at, at once. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas in, in the Renaissance banquets um, in France and Italy, <clears throat> Um, these courses uh, with up to 20, 30 different dishes would be brought out, and those would be put around, and people would pick at them. Um, generally, you know, if you had 30 different dishes, you would have a, a small serving of each one of them placed within arm's reach of everyone, especially the important people, and you would just It was like a tasting menu, and then they would whisk away those 30 dishes, and they would bring out another 5 or 10 or 15 or whatever, and these these banquets would go on for hours and hours and hours, Um, and this happened in, in, in many places in Europe. But um the French, because they um like to do this, um they, they called that Service à la Française. It wasn't particularly French as you say. And so the other really um, revolutionary thing that happened at about the same time that Crimaud de la Réigneur and Priya Savarin were um were writing, um, in the in the very early 1800s, this idea of service a la rice was introduced, and that is what essentially we have today. That is that a, a, a dish was brought in um, hot, one, one thing at a time, so that you actually ate hot food. Um, yeah, so instead of having all these things piled around you, most of them being congealed and, and not particularly appealing, um, you suddenly had this new kind of service. And the Russians um, introduced that to Paris. Uh, of course, the French, again, being uh, very proud of French people. Um, soon adopted it, and now everyone thinks that that was service à la Française. Uh, if you a <laughs> right. uh, um, 100 Frenchmen, I would say that 99 of them, if not 100, think that that was French.
3: Right. Well, we have a lot more to talk about in terms of um, fast-forwarding to some not-so-modern, mo- but not present-day, and we will do that as soon as we come back from a short break, so stay tuned. Hi, we're back, and I'm talking with David Downey. He's the author of a book, actually, to be released next week. Um, I think it's available now if you uh, go online. It's A Taste of Paris, A History of the Parisian Love Affair with Food. And, David, you know, it it, it can be very intimidating for a traveler in Paris. It's just part of the sightseeing is going to a market. Everything is so beautifully displayed um and very particular in terms of um you know what one should choose it, what what's you know there people the parisians all seem to be so um I don't know is this a nat- something a natural innate talent imbued in them how to choose their food and where to shop
4: for things what what is it uh, well yeah, I mean, I think that um, middle-aged and older Parisians were brought up in uh, in, a, in, a, in a very different world from what we live in today, um, where food was really a, a very important part of, um, uh, uh, of what you did during the day. Meaning, you'd go out and shop and cook, and then eat together. Uh, obviously, most Frenchmen uh, don't know how to boil an egg, and they still don't today, but um, <laughs> uh, I, you know, food, food has always been a big part of the culture here, and I'm not sure if it's um, innate or not, but they, they, they also seem to be pretty good with aesthetics and displaying foods to make them appealing. I mean, Uh, Don't get me wrong, I love London, (laughs) I have nothing against the English, but when I go to London and I I look into shop windows, and I see meat piled up in butcher shops, and it's just unappetizing often, Um, whereas, as you say, if you go into a, a French market, as Especially um, an open market, uh, each of the uh, star holders goes out of his way to, to display things in a, 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 you know, an attractive way. So it it, it becomes um, a joy to to shop as long as you're not trampled to death. I mean, <laughs> the outdoor markets can get very um, lively. Uh, the one I go to twice a week to get almost everything I, I, I cook um, is on the Boulevard Richard Lenoir. It's right near the Bastille, the Place de la Bastille, and um, you know you find. The most incredible produce of uh, uh, some direct producers, growers of food, including organic uh, produce, and um, great uh, fish mongers' stalls. Uh, there's uh, all kinds of things there: uh, cooked foods, uh, Lebanese street food, um, and, so, and so forth. So um, it's it's really part of the uh, daily culture of Paris, because every um, district, every neighborhood practically, has an outdoor market, and they they, they move around. uh, You know, there are many, many supermarkets, and you go to the supermarket here, I do, to buy, uh, you know, basic things like aluminum foil and toilet paper and whatnot, but um, for just about everything else, uh, you, you go to an open market or you go to a specialized shop like a, a butcher shop or a, um, uh, a bakery, a pastry shop, and so forth. And you know there too, everything is beautifully displayed. Um, it's it's a it's um it's an art. You you've been <laughs> to Paris. You see how yes. people dress. They're they're pretty uh, stylish. Compared to to most other people, I mean, again, the Italians are very stylish and they display things beautifully too. But you know, they are cousin countries. That's right.
3: That's right. Uh, There is, I mean, when I was. talking about marriages and monarchs and murder and intrigue in the introduction, I was referring, of course, a lot to the, you know, the marriages from, you know, France and Spain and and Italy, ways to combine empires and powers. And that had a tremendous amount to do with the development of cuisines as well. And uh, France, of course, absorbed it all. And... And, of course, we have to mention Catherine de' Medici and artichokes. <laughs> it's just yeah, one of my absolutely. favorite stories. Well,
4: everyone knows that artichokes are the uh, one of the great aphrodisiacs, right? Right. Uh, at least the Italians uh, believe that. I, I suspect you're of Italian origin, judging by your last name.
3: Not I, but it's in it's in my palate. <laughs>
4: Oh, okay. All right. Well, my my mother is actually Italian, so I grew up um, eating lots of Italian food. Uh, artichokes, again, another specialty of ancient Rome, but not native to Italy. Uh, artichokes are native to North Africa, believe it or not, and they were brought over by the Romans uh, over two thousand years ago and coddled and developed and. Um, uh, Caterina de' Medici, uh, who was a Florentine noble woman actually, she was a noble. She was, well, the Medici were not noble at that time, but they were later. Um, she uh, was married off to Henry II, King Henry II. <clears throat> now, he wasn't a king at the time, he wasn't even supposed to become a king because he was a younger son. Uh, but she was uh, shipped up to Paris, and um, her uh, husband became King Henry II, so um, Caterina de Medici, or Catherine de Medici, if you prefer, um, uh, brought all sorts of things up from Florence. Um, it is said that she introduced the fork to France. The historical record suggests that the fork had actually been brought up a lot earlier than that under Charles V in the 1300s, although it was not adopted and it was just used for serving purposes. Um, She she loved uh, marzipan and artichokes and all sorts of things uh, that the French hadn't been eating up to then. And... uh, uh, she also insisted on um the Italian Renaissance table manners and what the French then call the de la table, which means beautiful dishes and um flatware uh, that that kind of thing, ceramic dishes and so forth um, so she's credited with um certainly enlivening and uh modernizing. French food, but as you know from having read my book, the the story is more complicated because that process of the Italianization of French medieval cooking actually started before that. It started around the year 1500 when a, a very famous Italian cookbook was translated from Latin and Italian into French, and uh, uh, was adopted all over France. Um, that, that was a cookbook with a real mouthful for a title, um, De Honesta Voluptate, mm-hmm. which basically means um, honest, wholesome, voluptuousness. It was actually and a health, and, uh, and it was a health, uh, recipes, a, a health was, book uh, as well. By, uh, the recipes were actually by uh, an Italian cook. He may have been an Italian Swiss, who's not known, uh, named uh, Maestro or Maestro Martino, and so these recipes were uh, much. Better crafted and much more uh, useful and digestible than the um, most of the French uh, medieval repertoire, and so they were adopted widely. Um, there was yet another influence that was before Catarina de Medici, and that was King Francis I of France, um, François I, who went down to Italy over and over and fought in Italian campaigns and loved Italian food and loved Italian culture. And he is the one who brought, among many, many others, uh, Leonardo da Vinci back up to France um, to help with uh, military planning and also to uh, improve the state of the arts, because France was... Uh, stuck in the Middle Ages in many, many ways. Um, so the, the Italian influence was huge, and it started probably around the year 1500, and it really didn't wane until again, as I said, the, the, the reign of Louis really the 14th.
3: Right. Well, in reading your book, and, and I encourage people to, who are going to Paris, or who have been, or who just love to read about great places with great food, it um I have learned locations of things that, of course, you know, that are historical um, places that I, I would never have known about and did not know when I was there at time for another trip. Um, one in particular was the Bibliothèque Mazarin, which you used, I'm sure, for a lot of your research.
4: Yes, um, and, and again, it's <laughs> an interesting link to Italy. Uh, the Bibliothèque Mazarin is named for Mazarin, whose real name was Mazzarino. He was mm-hmm. Italian, and uh, he ran France. Uh, for a, a very long time. And anyone who's read uh, Three Musketeers or 20 years after you know the, the sequel to Three Musketeers will remember uh, Mazarin because he's decried as this Italian who uh, is running the country and he's, he's really villainous in the book. In fact, he, he may have been villainous. I'm, I don't know. I don't want to defend him, but he may have been um Louis the genetic father, among other things uh he created this um, college and uh it was called the uh, uh it's that beautiful building on the Seine where the Pont des is and it houses the French Academy and the french institute um Basically, the you know, language police and uh, the Bibliothèque Mazarin which is the, the Mazarin Library, which happens to have a uh, a copy one of the, uh, one of the original um, copies of Tivol. And I say copy because they were all copied by hand, so it's uh-huh. a it's a manuscript. And I it's in the reserve of reserves. It's practically impossible to to see it but I managed after months and months of pleading with them and they brought it out so I was very excited to see that and um, and lots and lots of other historic cookbooks and food you know, books about food so yeah it's a fabulous uh, Place so
3: that's a real treasure trove for gastronauts. Um, uh, so many and so many pieces of history. I learned that were you kind of filled the gaps in there for me and so many and explained so many of the uh, uh, you know the the trans the uh, transfers of of power and what was going on and it was very very intriguing for me. And then of course you get to the the other senses. Wine, food, and sex, as you refer to it, the Holy Trinity, which <laughs> I thought was brilliant. Um, wh- what of course Paris is known for this too, as I mentioned, the you know, the sidewalk cafes or the smoky bistros and and it's just all part of the whole Parisian intrigue, you know, the the food, wine and romance. Uh <laughs> What is there What is a one particular any particular instance that you feel kind of uh, started this whole thing?
4: Um, uh, well, yeah, I mean, I think that the the association of food and romance or sex uh, to, to be more straightforward. Began during the regency um, after the death of Louis the Thirteenth, and Louis the Fifteenth was very young. Um, so his uh, great uncle ran the, the realm, of Philippe d'Orleans, who who owned the um, Palais Royal that we all know about, and he he sort of initiated these intimate dinners that, that you know the sort of um, Orgies of food and and debauchery and sex. In fact, the word "roue" that we still use in English for someone who's really debauched um, came from the Palais Royal and and the people, the partiers who went to his dinner parties, and then it penetrated the, the middle classes, this bourgeoisie, the bourgeoisie. That really came into its own during the time of Madame de Pompadour in the the mid-1700s, when Louis XV was um, fully grown and ready to go. He became a great hedonist and ate immense amounts of food and galloped around and slept with countless mistresses. and it sort of got into the French blood. And then in the 19th century, with the rise and rise of the bourgeoisie, when uh, Paris really became the capital of the civilized world, at least the Western world, um, the, the, the restaurant was one of the places where you would uh, take your mistress, um, you know, didn't go the other way most of the time. It was almost always men taking their uh, lady friends to restaurants that had special private um, rooms. Um, There's still a number of restaurants around that uh, physically exist from that period, Um, but as far as I know, <laughs> that kind of thing doesn't go on anymore. Mm-hmm. But you can actually go into the restaurants today. Um, the Grand Affair at the Palais Royal, which is probably Paris' most beautiful restaurant from the late 18th century, uh, still has an upstairs area. Uh, the Escalgo Montalgay, which is mm, getting on 200 years old at this point, also has an upstairs. Um, and it's stopped at Victor Hugo, you take uh, his mistresses up there. Um, there. There are a number of others that I described in the book. So this association of food and um, philandering and sex and so on um, really <laughs> took root right. uh, for the middle classes in the 19th century. And And again... You know, my last book, the book that came up before this, was A Passion for Paris, and it's about the links between the Romantic Age and Paris today. And the, the French, the Parisians in particular, in many ways still live in the 19th century. Uh, Paris is no longer Caput Mundi, right? I mean, New York yeah. is much bigger and more powerful, right. richer, Beijing, London even, and so on, but Paris still is this wonderful, beautiful, romantic city with uh, tens of thousands of buildings from centuries past, including many, many old restaurants.
3: You know, um, I would be remiss if I, did not, if I ended this program without mentioning Escoffier. Now, you have a wonderful quote in the, in the end, towards the end of the book. You said, if Escoffier had not existed, someone French would have to have had to invent him. Uh, just elaborate on that for us, if you will.
4: Well, Escoffier was the, uh, not the first, but uh, certainly the greatest missionary of French cuisine and of sort of chauvinistic French nationalism when it came to cooking. He actually stole all of that from. Um, yeah. who, who had been the great uh, bridging chef between the Ancien Régime, the pre-revolutionary times and the um, Napoleonic era and the uh, restoration of the monarchy. Uh, so along comes Escofierre, 60, 70 years later. He came into his own, and he developed really the—he perfected, the notion of the grand tabs and the huge luxury rest uh, hotel and, and, and restaurant. Uh, so he, he teamed up with Faisal uh, Ritz, as in the Ritz Hotel. And he then exported French cooking or his version of it um, which was kind of wow 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 food again that he borrowed mostly from Karem and, and other chefs who may have been better chefs than he was he was a very um talented self promoter, um and uh, reminds me a great deal of certain superstar French chefs today. Um well, and, I, and I, he and he's am talking about. But right. um if you can't I'm happy to say that <laughs> I think that we, we wouldn't have an Alain Ducasse uh today without an Escoffier hundred yeah, hundred
3: years ago right and he I, was as you said yeah, he, he was he was the champion at championing the French cuisine and that's I th- thought that that would was a very interesting thing for you to say that that a French person would have had to invent him just because he did as much as he well he did a lot for the French cuisine in that regard is that he brought it to the rest of the world undoubtedly um, and and there are I was say there's so many other wonderful pieces of history and pieces of the past, pieces that live on, uh, restaurants, markets, food, cafes. Oh, it's just, as you know, of course, as a tourist, we look at it as more of a, a hedonistic, as you mentioned, you know, venture. We're there to party and play. And with a guide like you and a book like this, it makes it even more fun. And that's David Downey. And the book is A Taste of Paris. A History of the Parisian Love Affair with Food. And I might mention that David has a website, um, david d com, and also parisparistours.com. So, David, it was certainly a pleasure to talk with you about this book, and I encourage people to pick it up and use it, read it, take it with you in your suitcase if you're going to Paris. Thanks so much.
4: Yeah, many thanks. It's been great talking to you.
3: Okay, and thanks for listening. This has been A Taste of the Past, and I'm your host, Linda Palaccio.
1: Simplecast is a popular hosting and analytics platform that allows podcasters to easily host and publish to apps like Apple Podcasts. If you have a podcast or are looking to create your very first, check it out. Try it for free and save half off your first three months at simplecast.com forward slash heritage.